Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Dave's Dispatch Podcast. I'm David Dennison, and I'm so glad that you joined us. If you are hearing this message, it means that you are listening to the free version of the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. If, however, you find yourself wanting a fuller experience or you find yourself wishing you could ride the whole ride, I would encourage you to become a paid subscriber, which you can do at denisonwrites.substack.com. That's Denison with two N's, and that's right like to write a letter, not like to write a wrong. It's very inexpensive. It's $5 a month or $50 for a whole year, and a subscription gets you access to all the free content that not only the podcast has to offer, but also the newsletter that it accompanies. Thank you, and enjoy the show. Right, and off we go with the show. Now, if you are watching this, and if you were one of the one people who watched this last week on either YouTube or on a platform that allows you to watch podcasts, uh, you may be noticing that the angle is a little bit different, the lighting is a little bit different. The reason for that is that I got some new equipment and I'm trying out some new things. Uh, the reason you're getting this kind of Rush Limbaugh side-on angle of me here uh, is because I like to be able to look at my notes. And this way I can look at my notes without doing what I did like three or four times last week and go all the way over here, bringing the sound with me and then coming all the way back to the microphone and having things get loud again. Uh, this also gives you the benefit of my good side, which is no small thing. Um, so here we go. The first thing that we're gonna talk about this week is a piece that I wrote that was in the newsletter, if you are getting the newsletter and if you saw this particular piece, then you'll already be familiar with my thoughts. But I wrote a piece about how I think that Democrats and in particular the Biden team are mishandling questions about the president's advanced age and cognition. And it touched a little bit of a nerve with some who read it, and I understand why. This is a sensitive subject. I think the reason that we haven't had a fuller conversation about Joe Biden's age and mental fitness is because of what a sensitive subject it is. A lot of people, if you are my age or older, are bringing some baggage to the table with this one because a lot of us have seen this up close. A lot of us have had family members or friends who have been through this or their parents have been through this. And so we know a little bit about how uncomfortable it can be to point it out when an elderly person looks to be slipping. That said, this is a presidential campaign. It is among the most consequential events we watch in American life, and we just don't have time to be that nice. We don't have time to be as nice as people seem to want us to be. So here we, here we go. We're going to talk about it. Um, to my mind, it was only a matter of time before these questions really started to get loud. And that's what started to happen. There was a report that came from a special counsel from the Department of Justice that was looking into whether President Biden had mishandled sensitive information. And the finding there was that, yeah, he sort of did, but it did not rise to the level of something that would be prosecutable in a criminal court. Good news for the president there. 
The bad news for the president was that it included a number of very unflattering anecdotes, and it referred to the president as a, I think the quote was, a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory, which, okay, on the surface isn't the worst thing about it, to say about a guy who's in his 80s, but when you already have a candidate who voters think is declining, this reinforces that, and it just gave the press an opening, which they took, to tear into Joe Biden about his mental fitness. And it was a pretty uncomfortable spectacle if you happened to catch the press conference where he fielded questions about this. And in my view, he did not field those questions particularly well, nor is his team fielding these questions particularly well. They have been around for a while. And they've been around for a while because there is a validity to them. Joe Biden is the oldest president the United States has ever had. If he is reelected and serves a second full term, he will be 86 when he leaves office. That is by no definition young. And it is reasonable to wonder, since there are not a huge number of extraordinarily active and fit 86-year-olds out there running things, there are some, but there are not many, it is fair to wonder if he has another term in him. And even if it's not fair to wonder if he has another term in him, people are wondering if he has another term in him. So to the Democrats who are shooting the messenger, which seems to be the preferred course of action right now, oh, the press needs to shut up about this, or they need to focus on Trump and on his apparent decline, and voters shouldn't talk about this. The elephant in the room will simply walk up and go away if we stop acknowledging it. Well, I, forgive me, but that's nonsense. It's completely wishful thinking. These questions are here to stay because Joe Biden is not going to get any younger over the course of this campaign. Indeed, if history is any guide, campaigns tend to have the opposite effect on the candidates who run in them. So what do Dems need to be doing about this? Well, when you have a candidate about whom there is a negative perception, there are always steps you can take to work to correct that image. Now, they don't always succeed, and sometimes they go catastrophically wrong, as anyone who remembers the Dukakis in a tank debacle can attest. If you don't remember what that was, or you've never heard of it, in, what was it, 1988, Michael Dukakis was running against George Herbert Walker Bush. That was George W. Bush's father, for my younger listeners. And the perception was that he was kind of weak and weedy and a wimp. And so they thought they would handle this image by putting him in a flak helmet and photographing him riding around in a tank. Wow, did it not work. Uh, it had the exact opposite of its desired effect. He looked like a complete tool. He looked like a clown. He was pilloried by everyone for this image that just made him look like a poser idiot. And Dukakis in a tank became, we didn't have the word meme then, but it became a meme for when a candidate does something to try to correct an image and it just falls right on its face. Another more recent example of this was when Senator Elizabeth Warren was running for president and she was getting hit for having supposedly claimed to have Native American ancestry. My sense of that is that she wasn't intentionally lying. It was kind of family lore that she had Native American blood. Uh, if you're not an American, you may not understand this dynamic, but Americans mostly don't know, white Americans anyway, mostly don't know what their ethnic heritage is, and they have a kind of obsession with 
claiming heritage from different countries, like which is why you hear so many Americans say, I'm Irish or I'm Italian. It's like, well, no, you're American. What you mean to say is that at some point, a few generations back, you had ancestry from one of those countries. But Americans don't really make that distinction. And there was this big hullabaloo over Elizabeth Warren supposedly claiming to be Native American when on the surface, she sure looks like a vanilla white lady. And she then, her Dukakis in a tank moment was that she took a DNA test, which showed that she had a little tiny shred of Native American blood, and this satisfied nobody. She looked like a complete idiot to Republicans. Democrats just cringed at the fact that she had gone out and done this. It satisfied no one. It compounded the problem. It was a Dukakis in a tank moment. My point is, trying something like that is not always the worst idea. If you've got a candidate who people think is weak, you might put him in situations where he can look strong, either by looking physically fit or by like shaking hands with a bunch of tough-looking brawny military guys or walking around in a bomber jacket, whatever. If you've got a candidate who people think is aloof or unfriendly or antisocial, you can have him go out and kiss some babies or talk to some kids about something fun, do kind of light morning television style activities. In Joe Biden's case, the obvious answer to the questions around his cognitive fitness and his age would be to have him out there looking sharp, looking young, and looking in charge, looking like he is not just being managed by a staff who's sort of guarding access to him. Now, that could fall on its face, of course, if he's not up to it, and he could have a Dukakis in a tank moment, and that could really just be the election, which I'm sure is why his campaign has shied away from doing this. But they've got to do something, because what they're doing right now isn't working. It's not making these questions go away. And there was a very troubling bit of news this week where the White House announced that as part of his upcoming physical, the president is electing not to take a cognitive examination. That's not a good thing. It's not a good look. Now, obviously, if he's going to perform poorly on it, then yeah, you probably don't want him taking one. But if he's going to perform poorly on it, then we have a real problem. And it's not just a political problem. It's a real one. This is somebody who can order nuclear strikes. So being secure in the knowledge that he is cognitively firing on all cylinders and then some, not an unreasonable thing to ask for. Now, what about Trump? Okay, this is perfectly valid. I think that Trump has been showing signs of some kind of impairment for a long time. But it also doesn't matter because it doesn't change the fact that Joe Biden is too. And that Trump is worse? Look, you don't have to convince me of that. I'm a Democrat. But the last time around, Joe Biden ran a campaign where he basically sat back and twiddled his thumbs and waited for Trump to implode, and that's what happened, and it worked. Will it work again? Hey, we can hope, but I would like to see Team Biden being more proactive, particularly because this campaign is different in that he is coming off of four years of presidency that voters have not judged to be ideal. Whether we think that judgment is misguided, as I do, isn't the point. The point is he's got to do something about this. And whining that it's unfair or saying, but hey, look at the orange guy, that's not getting the job done. Now, this is a sensitive question, but is this just ageism? 
ageism is a, a real buzzword right now, right? Discrimination against people based on their age. Is that what this is? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and there's really no way around that. If Joe Biden were 65 instead of 81, I don't think anyone would really be saying he's too old to do this. But there are points at which ageism becomes kind of an understandable prejudice. Very few people would regard it as inappropriately ageist to say that 10-year-olds shouldn't drive cars. Now, I would not go as far, and some have, I would not go so far as to say that we should have some sort of cutoff where after a certain age, you are no longer eligible for the presidency. And we do have that on the younger end. You cannot run for president until, you cannot serve as president, sorry, until you are 35 years of age. You have to be 35, I believe, at the time of your inauguration. So we already say it on that end. Attaching an upper limit to it would be sensitive and it would be delicate, but it might not actually be the worst idea. And then we wouldn't have to be dealing with this because it would just be, he would simply be disqualified and there wouldn't be any question about it and nobody would have to tread on eggshells when talking about it. A side note on ageism. A lot of what passes for ageism isn't really prejudice against age, it's prejudice against having to pay people more, since older, more experienced workers can command higher wages and salaries, a lot of companies don't want to hire them. Now that's baked into the same cake. Some would say that that is a distinction without real difference, and maybe that's a valid concern. My point is, when we talk about ageism as being a serious societal problem, we are not usually talking about folks pointing out that a guy who is very advanced in age is applying for a very important, very demanding job. That is, in my view, a misapplication of the term. Now, another thing, and I'll move on to another topic after this. A lot of people regard this as an unfair line of inquiry because Biden has actually had a pretty successful presidency against all odds, right? I generally agree with that. I think he has been a productive president. I think things have improved under him. I have never once for one, well, I don't want to say never once for one second, because I've had actually a lot of those seconds since the war in Gaza started. But until the war in Gaza, I have had few moments where I regretted casting a vote for Joe Biden. I think on domestic policy, he has been mostly okay. I think in the last few months on foreign policy, he has been an unmitigated catastrophe, and I have been very embarrassed to have supported him, but that is a subject for a different edition of this podcast. The point is, has Joe Biden been a pretty good president? Yeah, for the most part, he has. Certainly better than Trump. But having been a good president does not mean being a good president candidate. He is running for re-election now, and that's a different gig than governing. And if he's not going to get the job done, it really doesn't matter how effective his governing is, because come January, he isn't going to be doing it. That's my final point on this for now. We will very likely check back in on this issue as again, I just don't think these questions are going anywhere, and I don't see any indication 
that Democrats are going to find the right track in how to handle this. And maybe that's because they can't, because he really doesn't have it in him to be doing this. And they're just hoping, oh my gosh, not another Trump term. Let's protect him and get him through the campaign. And then we'll find some way to get him through as much of his term as we can do before he either leaves office gracefully or passes the torch to somebody younger. But at this point, things are not looking good. Okay, we're going to take a sharp left turn now. And we're going to move on to talking about an issue that I'm very happy to be able to be talking about. And it's kind of a culture war issue, but it's lighter hearted and uh, it involves a TV show that I've been really enjoying and I'm always kind of happy to talk about the arts. So next up is going to be a discussion of season four of True Detective, which is called True Detective Night Country. And don't worry, I'm not going to include any plot spoilers. Now, if you are a spoiler purist, if you have been saving this, the finale comes out this weekend, and if you have, like, I don't know anything about this, I don't want to hear anything about this, I don't want to know one single thing, this is going to be the last segment of the free edition of the podcast, so if this is not going to be for you, go ahead and just turn this off right now. But again, there will be no plot spoilers. I would never use my podcast to ruin a piece of entertainment in that way. Um, but... This has been, in my judgment, a very good season. I have loved it, and so I wanted to recommend it. It's a show that I have mostly, with some qualification, loved since it's been on. And it does sort of touch on what I think are some ugly culture war politics, So, which is why I get to bring it up and why I get to talk television for a little bit. So very, very basically, if you don't know anything about True Detective, it's an anthology show. So season one, which featured Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson absolutely knocking it out of the park and playing career-defining roles, in my view, was an eight-episode arc that featured a very grisly series of murders set in Louisiana. And season two was a completely different thing entirely. It featured a different cast of characters. It was set in California. It had really no relationship at all to season one. Fans also, I should note, hated season two this fan especially. Season three went in a different direction entirely and went kind of back to the working relationship between two detectives centerpiece, but played around with the timeline so that there were, it was, it was good, but it was kind of confusing. There were three separate timelines that made it so that you really had to pay attention to Mahershala Ali's haircut in order to tell when in the development of the story you were, which I didn't find off-putting, but some did, and I think it's a valid concern. Anyway, now, this, is, this season we are in the Arctic Circle, in the far north of Alaska, during the night season. So during that month or so when the sun does not come up. And it stars Jodie Foster uh, in a role that is very, very unusual for her, but in which I think she is crushing it. And it features a relative newcomer to the screen whose name... I am so afraid I'm going to mispronounce because there are several different variants of it and I've mostly only read it. I believe it is pronounced Kaylee Rice, but if it is actually Callie Reese or some variation thereof, I'm very sorry. As I said, I don't watch a lot of entertainment television other than the shows themselves, so I never actually know how these names are pronounced. But it's very good. It has some differences from previous seasons, but it is getting review bombed 
on IMDb, which is the site I use to kind of figure out what television shows and movies I want to watch. I have never understood how Rotten Tomatoes works, so if you listen to that, maybe the picture there is better and different. But in any event, IMDb allows users to score movies. And as long as you kind of know what you're looking for, I find the scoring on IMDb to be mostly helpful. For example, it's always a score out of 10. It's got decimal points. If it's a movie, anything above a six is probably going to be pretty good. If it's a TV show, you want to see something above an eight. But there are exceptions to this. So if something has a fandom, if you're talking about an Aliens movie or a Star Wars movie or a Star Trek show, that fandom can tilt, usually in a negative direction, whatever kind of IMDb score it gets. For example, the Alien and Predator fandom, which in my judgment is just one of the most annoying and curmudgeonly on the internet, every Alien movie that comes out, most of, some of which have been duds, but some of which have been really good, just gets hate-bombed online. This is terrible. This is the worst thing ever, because they can't get over the fact that not everything is going to be quite as good as the original Ridley Scott film or the James Cameron sequel. Another thing that will skew the results uh, on IMDb ratings, IMDb, by the way, stands for the Internet Movie Database, and it is a website and service to which I am completely addicted. Um, another thing that will mess up the results is if anything has a political flavor to it, namely if it feels pandery. So if something is pushing an aggressively conservative message, it will get dinged for that. If something is pushing an aggressively liberal message, it will get dinged for that. Not even liberal or conservative viewers really enjoy, this is my theory, really enjoy being pandered to when they're watching TV. So anything that feels like, oh man, come on, I, I turned this on to escape all of that, is going to get hit pretty hard uh, for not being very good. But what's happening to True Detective Night Country is it is getting review bombed. If you go on and you look at every one of these episodes, there are all these guys leaving one, two, three star reviews. This is crap. This season can't get it together. This is not like the first season. I hate this. I can't even watch it. The plot is unfollowable. The sound is terrible. The acting is rubbish. And what happens is if enough guys do that, and I'm saying guys for a reason because it is guys doing this, and we'll come to that. If enough guys do that, it pulls the average down and people like me who can rely on IMDb to sort of decide if a thing is going to be worth watching or not end up getting a very skewed picture painted for them of how effective the piece of art is actually going to be. And with a show like True Detective, this is particularly important because the quality from season to season has been a roller coaster. Season one was one of the most outstanding, if very dark and gritty, prestige dramas that I've ever seen. Season two was, I'm sorry to all the people who worked hard on it, complete garbage. Season three was a step in the right direction, and in my view, season four is as good as the first season. It is a return to form for the ages. But if you look on IMDb, the trend you would see would be exactly the opposite. You would think this was another swing and a miss, and that is so terribly unfair. And I think, unfortunately, that I have an idea as to why this is happening, and I don't like it. Some things you should also know, and this will include no spoilers, about this current season of True Detective, is that it is written and directed by a woman named Issa Lopez. It features two female co-stars, which none of the other seasons have had. 
And it is a storyline that is in many ways centered on women's stories. It also features a very diverse cast. It is set in the northern part of Alaska, and a number of the cast members are indigenous Americans. And a, a large number of motifs and plot turns end up weaving indigenous Alaskan culture into the story in what are, in my judgment, very interesting ways. But we're coming off of like 10 years of identity-focused culture warring that has had a huge impact on what entertainment looks like. And while I think it has mostly been a good impact on entertainment that this focus on identity has, it has a tendency to wear people out. And not because the quality is sacrificed, but because, because in this case, it most certainly has not been, but because you get the sense listening to cultural commentators that they wouldn't really care or even notice an instance where the quality had been sacrificed. One of my absolute least favorite trends in the arts and in the blending of arts and culture and politics is when somebody tells me that a piece of art is quote-unquote important. That there is something about this, either because of the identity of the person who made it, or the identity of the star in it, or the identity of the characters in the story, that it's important that I go out and watch this. I swear that framing, this piece of art, is important, so you need to go watch it, needs to die forever. There is no surer way to turn an enjoyable piece of entertainment into homework than to tell somebody that it's important for them to watch it. They shouldn't want to watch a TV show because it's important. They should want to watch a TV show because it is entertaining, because it allows them to escape from things that are actually important. And I'm wondering if True Detective Night Country is suffering from the impression that they have just cobbled together some piece of entertainment wokery which could not be farther from the truth in this case. For one thing, the show is not woke at all. If you are somebody who needs politically sanitized entertainment, particularly as it regards to identity, this show is not for you. You're going to hate it. So I don't even think most of the people commenting on this have actually watched the show with any kind of seriousness. Because if they had, they would see that that wasn't a thing. But I do get the sense that if this were, I don't want to do the woke person thing of, oh, you wouldn't be saying this if it weren't women running it. But you wouldn't be saying this if it weren't women running the show and directing it. And if it didn't have a diverse cast, it would be evaluated purely on its merits. And that sucks because True Detective Night Country is an example of diversity and representation done well, done right. It's a good story that isn't leaning too aggressively on politics or identity, although some of that is present in the storytelling, but it's integrated really well. And this is exactly what advocates of better diversity and representation in art are talking about us being able to have. Really excellent, top-flight, grade-A television and movies that don't just feature the same slate of famous white actors and famous white writers every single time on and on and on to infinity. This show is getting everything right. And I think it is being penalized as though it's not. 
and that stinks. Now, I, it's possible that I'm being uncharitable, and it's possible that I just need to pull my head out of the culture wars. That I'm assu- that maybe people are actually reacting to something about the show itself that isn't just the makeup of the cast, that isn't just the fact that it is being produced and starred in by women. It has taken another slight turn, and, and this is not going to be a spoiler, but the elements of horror have been a lot more prevalent in this season than they were in previous seasons. It's always been a very dark show. It's always been a very gritty show. Season one especially had some pretty spooky elements to it, but my wife and I were watching this current season, Night Country, and there are some legitimate jump scares. There are some legitimately eerie and creepy things that happen in the show. And it could be that, and there are some vaguely hinting at supernatural elements to it. It's not like a Stephen King, so don't worry about that. It has not taken that much of a turn, but it has been different and it has felt different at times. In my view, though, those elements have added enormous value to the production because they are executed expertly. They are, it is a show that is in some ways intending to be scary that succeeds in being scary. I jumped out of my skin several times. The sound editing, which should win awards, and amazingly, some of the comments on IMDb are like, the sound editing sucks. It's incredible. It uses phenomenal music that beautifully captures the eeriness and the desolate nature of that part of the northern slope of Alaska. It, But I can understand how a fan purist might balk at such a significant thematic change to the material. But to the extent that there are fans out there who are bombing this because they're, they think they're being fed some pandery woke trash, shut up. That's not what this is. This is a really excellent piece of television and fans deserve to watch it. The actors in it deserve recognition, particularly because so many of the cast members are unknown and this is their big break and they deserve to be basking in it and they deserve to go on to do more impressive work on the big and small screen. And it is compromising that to have so many people review bombing it. Like it's a serious thing and there's really nothing you can do about it other than me screaming into the void that people shouldn't listen to him. But this stuff matters and it really ticked me off because I looked this up on IMDb before I started watching and I went, ah, darn, this is not gonna be good. And then I turned it on and it was phenomenal. So it really, really, really irks me when that happens. Now I am gonna say one thing in sort of partial, a little bit defense of the review bombers. When there are instances of diverse representation in media that for whatever reason are unpopular, maybe they have gender bent a character, as in making a character who was formerly a man a woman, or they have race bent a character, taking a character who sort of existed in the collective imagination as white and casting a black actor. Sometimes people complain about that, and sometimes they complain about it because they are racists and that's just what they do. Other times though, there can be validity to these complaints that liberals can be extremely unhelpful in receiving. If, for example, you are talking about The Little Mermaid, a character who in the beloved cartoon version was a little white redhead and in the new live action version was a black character, 
yeah, some people are just going to be mad about that because they're looking at it from a political angle and they think this is just part of a trend in Hollywood of pandering that they don't like. Some people aren't even engaging with it on that level, though, and they're just going, oh, well, Ariel looked a certain way in my head, and now in this casting, she's not going to look the way in my head, and I just kind of look, kind of wish she looked the way she looks in my head. And that doesn't need to be an intensely political position to be taking, and we don't always need to view somebody criticizing a casting choice as a fundamentally political act, but we always, always, always in these intense culture-warring times do that. And that can really be counterproductive because I think that representation matters enormously in television. I think if the only, this was true in the 80s and 90s, you had to look pretty hard to find black characters who weren't some manner of like street tough. There weren't a lot of movies that featured Asian romantic leads. There were no movies or TV shows that featured gay characters as anything but really punchlines. And that sucked because Americans especially are a divided people. Most of us grew up in and in some cases still live in very homogenous areas with regard to identity. We aren't exposed to a lot of diversity and sometimes television and movies and media is the only exposure to any of that that we get. So if all of that is a stereotype, like if you turned on a television show in the decade after 9-11 and you saw an Arab character, 99 times out of 100 that character was either a terrorist or a suspected terrorist. It was like there was no way for Arab Americans to participate in American media without having that baggage get dragged along with them. And that's a problem. It actually is a problem. That's not just something that like wokesters say and they're wrong about. No, they're right about that. That's not good because it does impact the way folks see these groups. And so to be changing that and to be putting people of color and women and gay people and trans people in these roles matters. It's a very good impulse. It is unfortunately an impulse that can be very easily twisted and poisoned if liberals are sitting back and sneering and calling everyone a racist for daring to complain about it. That's not a good look, and it's not going to give viewers what they should be getting out of it, which is exposure to somebody looking different that is positive and that might, down the road, make them challenge some of the prejudices that they have. That's what we want, right? We don't want people to be stereotyped. And if you've got a culture war climate in which anyone who says boo about an instance of diverse casting or diverse representation in a TV show is just immediately slam, you're a racist, you're a scumbag, we're going to cancel you, that's counterproductive and it doesn't help. Now, I didn't see a lot of that with True Detective Night Country, so I have no real reason to think that that has been a serious dynamic. But after about 10 years of it, a case can be made that some of these internet trolls can be forgiven for assuming that there might be an element of that at play. For my part, and I'm going to end the free version of the podcast with this, I can't wait until art and media moves past this, until we can get truly diverse representation that not a single person regards as a pander. 
Because once we do that, for one thing, we're going to know who the real bigots are and who is just sort of going, oh, this feels like politics and I don't want to play politics today. That's why I turned on Netflix or HBO Go instead. I look forward to that day when representation and diversity in media is so prevalent that it is simply unremarkable, that we have simply moved past anyone having to wonder if somebody is trying to jam a political message down their throat and they can just sit back and put their feet up and enjoy some very high quality art, which trust me, as long as you got a tolerance for the gritty and the dark and the scary, True Detective Night Country is an example of really great art. And with that, we are going to conclude the free version of this podcast. If you would like to hang around, I am going to be talking about a rare spot of good news for the Democratic Party that came by way of a handful of special elections this week. And I'm going to be talking about what I think the implications of that improbable success might be. If you want to hear that, you will need to subscribe to Dave's Dispatch, the newsletter. You can find it at denisonwrites.substack.com. It's $5 a month or $50 for a year, and it gets you all the free content on the podcast and all the free content in the newsletter, too. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you have a wonderful weekend.